before uh, we get to our passage, and actually if you would uh, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 1, that's where we're going to be. I just wanted to um, read this other verse to you before we get started. And, and sometimes as we, um, as we read our passage of Scripture for the text for the day, uh, I'll have you stand. And I just want to remind us of uh, why we do that when we do that. Um, but in Nehemiah chapter 8, um, Ezra gathers the people together and he takes the book of the law and, and just briefly to, to read one verse from chapter 8. In verse 5 it says, And Ezra opened the book, which was God's word, in the sight of all the people, uh, for he was above all the people. Just means he's standing up on a platform. It says that earlier. And as he opened it, all the people stood for the reading of God's word. He didn't have to tell them. It was just this, um, and we are about to hear the word of God spoken. Uh, Not because of the person that's standing up here, but because of what they're reading from. It's God's word. And so the reason we do that, the reason we stand together is just, this is God's word. We believe this is word for word. God breathed. And so as we're about to hear from him, um, we want to stand and, and read it together. And, and uh, we're going to be in Ephesians 1. So if you cheated and ran back to Nehemiah, um, you might be behind a bit. But Ephesians 1. I'm going to start with verse 15 and read through verse 23. It's not what we're... We're not going to cover all of that today. We're just going to do the last three verses, four verses. But For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Father God, thank you for your word. Pray that you would open hearts, open our minds to hear from you today, Lord. Your word is truth and we are grateful for it. We want to submit to it. We pray that you help us in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. We are mainly going to look at verses 20 through 23. But just as a reminder, this is um, this section where Paul is telling the church in Ephesus that he is praying for them. He's heard of their faith. He's heard of their love for each other and not just for each other, but for all the saints. 
and he's praying for them. He says, I don't cease to give thanks for you, and I remember you in my prayers, and I'm praying these things. I'm praying that your hearts would be enlightened, that you would know what is the hope to which he's called you, that you would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and that you would know his immeasurable power that is at work toward you. And then he goes through and explains more of what that power is and has done and and the demonstration of that. And we're really going to focus on some of that this morning. And so uh, really the goal, the aim this morning is is the exaltation of Christ as we look at um, the significance of God's power in four things. And the resurrection, uh, his power in the ascension, uh, his reign, and his power at work in the believer, in all believers. So the first part of it, uh, as we look at it, is, is uh, God's power, the power of God in the resurrection. Uh, if you notice what we um, looked at in verse 20 there, speaking of the power of God, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now, what, what, what has that done uh, when we think of the resurrection, what's the significance? What has the resurrection done? And there are a few things that I want to talk about this morning. First, um, just to read some passages for you. Mark 8.31, where, where Jesus, it's referring to Jesus here, and he says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. In the next chapter, Mark 9 Verse 31, it says, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, this is Jesus, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. And Mark 10, verse 34, Jesus again, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now, in all of those, it's, it's Jesus who's talking, and he's referring to himself. He's saying to them, this is what's going to happen to me, the Son of Man. This is what is going to happen to me. They're going to arrest me. They're going to beat me. They're going to kill me, but I'm not going to stay dead. I'm going to rise again. Well, the significance here is, and the greatness, one of the great things that we have in, in, in the demonstration of God's power in the resurrection is it fulfilled the word of Christ. It fulfilled Christ's word when he prophesied. And that's a big deal. It wasn't like Jesus said, hey, I'm going to go to this place and I'll probably swing into this place while I'm there. Like if I were to say, hey, I'm going to California sometime this fall. And when I'm there, I'm going to go to In-N-Out Burger. It's not that kind of a prophecy, right? Where he could just do it. He said, I'm going to die. They're going to kill me. They're going to put me to death and I will rise again. And it happened. And so there's this fulfillment of Christ's word, which just shows us and affirms to us that he was sent by God and he is God's son. God made flesh. And so we have this incredible demonstration of God's power and this incredible hope in the resurrection because it's the fulfilling of Christ himself's word. It's what he said was going to happen to him. And it happened. It also establishes the regeneration of God's people. I love this. These next couple of of, of things, I hope just build so much hope and just 
happiness and the resurrection in you. Because the resurrection establishes the regeneration of God's people. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Ephesians 2.5 Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive with Christ who is alive because of the resurrection. He's not dead. He's alive. And we don't serve this Jesus who's still hanging on a cross. We serve and worship this risen, glorified Savior of the world. Colossians 2.13 And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. The resurrection of Jesus Christ establishes the regeneration of us. That word regeneration, if you take the opposite of that, those who are unregenerate are those who are dead spiritually, those who are dead in their sins. And so it establishes the regeneration, the, 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 the truth and the beauty that we have been brought back to life by God. We have been breathed life into by God. It establishes that for us. And what it's saying here is we were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, but God made us alive together with him who is alive. So we have our life because he has life. He didn't stay dead. Not just that, but it secures our justification. Maybe you're thinking, I thought the cross did that. I thought Jesus dying is what secured my justification, my right standing with God. But listen to this, Romans 4, 24 and 25. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He was raised so that we could be in right standing with God. Matthew Henry says this, by the merit of his death, he paid for our debt. In his resurrection, he took out our acquittal. When he was buried, he lay a prisoner in execution for our debt. On the third day, an angel was sent to roll away the stone and so to discharge the prisoner, which was the greatest assurance possible that divine justice was satisfied. We are right with God because Jesus is alive. In fact, Paul says this way in 1 Corinthians fifteen fourteen through 17. You may be familiar with this passage. I hope you are. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Now listen, and if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Christ is not alive, then we're still dead spiritually. We have no hope. We have no hope of being 
regenerated. We have no hope of being justified, made right with God. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. This is a waste of time. There has got to be something on TV that you could be doing instead of this if Christ is not raised. Because this is worthless. What we're doing is worthless if Christ is not alive. The resurrection matters. I heard one time um, a quote of, of a person. I don't remember who it was, but I heard it on the radio. And this person who was quoted saying, even if I found out that the resurrection wasn't true, if Jesus didn't come back to life, I still wouldn't lose my faith. I'd still believe. I'm like, no, no, we wouldn't. For two reasons, we wouldn't have a right standing with God in the first place. We wouldn't be made right with God. It's his resurrection that even made it possible for us to be alive. And just as Paul says, if there's no resurrection, if there's no life, if Christ isn't alive, then, then this is just a waste. This is futile. And I'm still in my sins, hopeless. The resurrection is our hope. You know, how much do we think on the resurrection? How much do we talk about the resurrection? How much do we dwell on the fact that Christ is alive? Honestly, honestly, most of us, I think, really spend our heart and mind and time thinking about the cross and what he did on the cross. And that's, that's important. It's necessary. But it's not independent. He didn't stay there. What he, the work that he accomplished on the cross is, 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 is absolutely necessary for us. But do we also rejoice and think and dwell on and worship him and in our prayer times just meditate on and think on and worship him for all that has been accomplished in the resurrection and him being alive? God demonstrated his glory and power by raising Christ from the dead. And he fulfilled the word of Christ. He established regeneration for us. He secures our justification. It matters. We ought to be worshiping him for it. So one of the things we're going to do this morning as we go through each of these, we're going to spend just a moment. But I want to ask you to just spend a moment in, in just quiet, worshipful prayer. Just before the Lord. I'll interrupt you in a minute or two, but just thinking on all of these things. Christ is alive. That, that, that Him being alive and God's power working through the resurrection has fulfilled God's word, Christ's word to us. Exalting Him as the Son of God. It's, that, that it's established the regeneration. He's breathed life into us that we're not dead in our sins anymore. It secures our justification, our right standing with God. And just take a minute and worship him. And we'll go on. Father, if, uh, if your son is not risen, then what we are doing is meaningless and we are lost, still dead in our sins. And so, God, we praise you, we thank you, we worship you that Christ is alive. 
that he has conquered the grave. That our hope is not in ourselves, but in all that he accomplished. And all that you accomplished as you demonstrated your power in raising him. We praise you. We thank you. God, I, I pray, Lord, I pray that your words would root themselves deep into our hearts, that we would be a people who are mindful of these things, that we would celebrate the resurrection, not just when we hear songs about it, not just when when we see a passage on it, Lord, that we would walk in newness of life in a right standing with you, knowing it is because Jesus is alive. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Second thing I want to look at is um, the power of God in the ascension. And it, if you notice in the passage, it says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of in the heavenly places. When between there, there's, there's something significant that happens, right? Jesus leaves earth and he goes back to heaven. In Luke 24, verse 50, it says, While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven and they worshipped him. And so how is the power of God demonstrated in the ascension? And, how, and why ought we to be worshipping God more because Christ ascended and is now in heaven? First of all, just like with the last thing we talked about, with the resurrection, it fulfills prophecy. In Daniel 7, verse 13, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. That's Daniel seeing hundreds of years before Jesus ascending and going back to heaven, to the Father. And so it fulfills prophecy and again gives us assurance of who Christ is and gives us assurance of the word of God. What it means to us and its trustworthiness. Second, it assures us that Jesus has gone to an actual physical place. And Jesus is, is not just left and gone to this ethereal place that maybe we'll get to go to and it's just going to be like floating around that no he's gone to a physical real place heaven and that someday we will join him there john 14 verse 3 he says to the disciples if if i go and prepare a place for you i will come again and will take you to myself that where i am you may be also if you remember in the book of Acts, at the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus is standing there with the disciples, those who are followers of him. And he says to them, men of, or, or the angels say to him, men of Galilee, let me explain this better. Jesus has ascended and there's angels that are there and they explain to the people, they say to the people, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And just as you saw him go physically, they're saying, he's going to come again physically. 
1 Thessalonians 4.17 says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. The power of God in, 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 in Christ's ascension. And these, uh, just imagine this. I mean, they saw him physically go up into heaven. And then they were told by the angels, Listen, don't worry and don't just stand and stare. This same Jesus who went physically into heaven, he's going to come again. And we ought to hope in that. We ought to have so much joy in that. And as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Jesus, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again. I'm going to take you to myself. We're going to be there together forever. What an amazing, amazing, wonderful thought that is. It confirms Christ as the perfect mediator between us and the Father. And Christ, who is the eternally incarnate Son of God, as the perfect mediator between us and the Father. 1 Timothy 2.5, you may you may have memorized this verse for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Hebrews two seventeen says, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Christ, who came physically and lived physically and lived a perfect life and died and rose again and ascended physically into heaven, is now our mediator between us and God. And so as we go to him, he's going to the Father on our behalf. And and as Hebrews says, he... He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful. He's merciful and faithful. He's faithful high priest in the service of God. And in doing that, he made propitiations. He satisfied the wrath of God for our sins. He made propitiation for us. God's wrath has been satisfied by this Jesus who came and lived and died and rose again. Now has ascended into heaven. And so just for a moment, we're going to take just a moment and worship the Lord just in the power that is demonstrated in Christ physically ascending and the hope that that brings. My hope is as you think through what Christ says about I'm preparing a place for you. If you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, I'm literally preparing a literal physical place for you. And if I'm going to do that, I'm going to come and take you and we're going to be together forever. I hope that that stirs in you, not just a a, a worship of God, but a desire to be with him. Not just a desire for what you have planned tomorrow, not just the desire for the things that you have to get accomplished this week, but ultimately a desire, God, I want to be with you. I want to be with you literally forever. I praise you that Christ is alive and that he's ascended to be with you. And there's purpose in that. He's preparing a place for me. And so just for a moment, we're going to worship quietly the Lord in that.
Jesus, we are so thankful. We worship you who is our mediator. Who is preparing a place for us. Lord, may we want to be with you more than anything. May we want to live for you while we are here more than anything. And may our hope and our desire be for a future. We don't know how future it is, but a future physical place with you. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. The third thing uh, I want to look at is look back in verse 20 and 21. This great power that he worked in Christ when he seated him, the last part of 20 there, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. power of God in seating Christ at his right hand. John Calvin says of this, it's not referring to any particular place. When it says that he seated him at his right hand, it's not referring to any particular place, but the power which the Father has bestowed on Christ. The expression does not refer to any bodily posture, but denotes the highest royal power with which Christ has been invested. Look at what it says in 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Christ reigning, ruling. Romans 8.34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Hebrews 1, the last part of verse 3 and... Verse 4, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. John MacArthur says he is not only above, he is far above. You see that in verse 21. He is far above everything and everyone else. He is above Satan and above Satan's world system. He is above the holy angels and the fallen angels, above saved people and unsaved people. For time and for eternity, he is above all names, titles, ranks, levels, powers and jurisdictions in the universe. Christ is all and over all. And seated at the right hand of the Father, this this picture of, of power and majesty, supremeness. 
You see from the passage, there's no limit to it. Paul says not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There's no limit to this power. There's no limit to his majesty. There's no limit to his reign. In this age, but also in the one to come. So let's look at both of those. First, Jesus' power in this age, which is his church. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ is the head of the church. He's the head, it says, and the fullness of the church. That, that idea, that metaphor of, of head denotes highest authority. You have a picture, we talk about the church being the body of Christ and Christ being the head, right? And Christ is the head. He's the authority. He's the, he's the one who leads it and guides it and, and ought to think for it, right? Sometimes we get that out of place. But he's the head. He's the authority, the highest authority of the church. He's the source of life for the church. Notice what it says there. He gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. What does that that mean? Well, just to keep us from, from, from having this idea or, 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 or thinking that there's any real defect in Christ if the church is separated from Him. It puts those last words in there. The fullness of Him who fills all in all. And so it keeps us from this, this idea that if we were separated from Christ that there would be uh, a defect in Him. That He needs us to be a part of Him. What it really is is that His wish to be filled and in some respects made perfect in us arises from not necessity, but from his own will and desire. So we're the fullness of him by his desire. John, John MacArthur um, puts it this way, as the head must have a body to manifest the glory of the head, so the Lord must have the church to manifest his glory. The church is the fullness or complement of Christ. We're the complement of Christ. And just like when we talked about from Acts 1.11, where the, where the angels were there and said, this Jesus who is risen, who you just saw ascend into heaven, he will come again. Remember, that was right after verse 8, where he said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses. And, and so as his body, as his complement, that's what we are called to do. As the church, to go and be his witnesses, to go and to evangelize, to go and to display him to the world. We're the body of Christ. We have this great calling and this great hope with Christ as our head that is actually possible to display him to the world. It's not just... Authority over the church, but it says Jesus' power and authority is in the age to come. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 34. Just think about this. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, and He will sit on His glorious throne, before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, 
You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 and 25, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Christ reigns supreme. And there is nothing that we ought to have but hope and joy in who he is. God, through his power, has seated him supremely over all things at his right hand, far above, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You think of Philippians chapter 2, when it talks about Christ's example of humility, and in verse um, 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this kingdom is not just a temporary kingdom, it's an eternal kingdom. And so just for a moment, we're going to worship him who reigns and is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Just take a minute to do that. Lord, we do need your help. Just as Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus that you would give a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. The eyes of their heart would be enlightened. We need that, Lord. Just as he prayed for them that they would know the power that is working towards them, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, the same power that seated him at the right hand of you, God. The same power, Lord. We need your help in that. We need our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, enlightened, opened, awakened, helped. So that even in times like this, when we're trying to to focus and, and worship you in spirit and truth because of who you are, Jesus, because of who you are and how you reign far above and how all things are subjected to you and how every knee is going to bow, whether we have already or refuse to now, how every knee is going to bow before you. We need you, Father, to open our eyes, to help us to worship in spirit and truth as you deserve. I pray that you would do that. That your spirit would work in us and enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Even as we finish this message out, as we finish this service out, God, that you would, that you would do your work in us. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Last thing I want to...
um, talk about as we think through all of these things that we've just mentioned and the power of God that worked in raising Christ from the dead. Just thinking about that same power, the power of God that seated him at his right hand, the power of God that brought about the ascension of Christ, the power of God that's working. Paul says in this that his prayer is that the people in Ephesus and that we would know that the same power that did those things is working on our behalf. It's working towards us. So the last thing is the power of God in every believer. Verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, of his great might, not of whatever we can muster up, but his great might, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, the same power that seated him in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, that same power, Paul says, I I pray, I pray that you would know is working towards you. I'm just going to read two passages. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 11. You can turn there. And then we're going to go back to Romans 6, 1 through 10. Look what Peter says in, in thinking through this power that is at work towards us. He says, His divine power, in verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sin. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Think through those things he says in verses 5 through seven supplement your faith with virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love and what's what, what's peter saying here god's power has accomplished that for you and when we walk around forgetting that he has cleansed us, not, not thinking, as, just as Paul is praying in Ephesians 1, not knowing, verse 3 of chapter 1, that he's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. When we're just walking around not realizing that, we're missing. And, and, and even what he says is, those who lack these qualities are so nearsighted that he is 
blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. That's talking about us. when We're not living in what Christ has purchased for us. Knowing that his power is working towards us. And that we can walk in newness of life. We can walk in newness of life. Romans, go back to uh, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin now if we have died with christ we believe that we will also live with him we know that christ being raised from the dead will never die again death no longer has dominion over him for the death he died he died to sin once for all but the life he lives he lives to god So you also, verse 11, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see verse 7? For one who has died has been set free from sin. So often we walk around feeling like we are slaves to sin still. And it's not true. Paul says the same power that raised Christ from the dead, the same power that has seated him at the right hand of the Father, that same power is at work towards us who believe. And when we died, we died to sin so that we might walk in newness of life. What what Paul's praying in Ephesians is that these people would would realize, recognize, and, and my prayer for us is that we would recognize that everything that Paul teaches in verses 3 through 14, and I encourage you, if you're not still reading through this each week, I encourage you to do that. But all of these things that he talks about in, in 3 through 14, that we would know them as truth. Not as something that we have to finally get to in our walk with Christ and then this is true about us. No. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We pray, Father, please pray that you would awaken our hearts and that we would believe you, that we would believe you. And even as we talked about last week when we said that some of us just need to go back and get on our faces and And repent for our lack of belief in what you have promised, Lord. We can't even comprehend your power. We can't even begin to to scratch the surface of how great it is. 
and how awesome it is. And you say that that power is working towards us. God, help us. We praise you. We thank you for Christ and how you have demonstrated your power and your love, your grace, your faithfulness, your goodness, your righteousness, your holiness. You demonstrated through Christ. God, help us to have hearts that believe, that believe you. That we wouldn't just be a people who says, yes, we believe in Jesus, but that we would have the eyes of our hearts opened. That we would know, that we would know the greatness of your power. How you've demonstrated it. And how you continue to demonstrate it in our lives. And that as we hope in you and have faith in you and your word and what you have accomplished for us, that we would walk in that hope and we would walk in faith and in newness of life and that we would be filled with your spirit and carried by him as we walk by the spirit and not gratifying the desires of the flesh. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.